We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. It's 6.08 in the Twin Cities. As my Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. Uh, I did just check in with my colleagues, and of course you heard Sloan Martin at the top of the hour talking about uh, that protest uh, in the aftermath of the Officer Yanez acquittal in the Philando Castile shooting, uh, there is another protest at Loring Park right now. It does appear to be far calmer than the one that occurred last night. Uh, it is growing. There are hundreds of people there, but so far no indication that they perhaps will, will go on to or try to disrupt traffic. Obviously, what happened last night was a very uh, tricky situation and very difficult situation, especially when you consider that last summer a very similar situation occurred and you had more than 20, more than 20 St. Paul police officers injured. Last night, uh, as as far as I can see, there there were no officers injured. Uh, There were 18 arrests. Last year, there were over 100 arrests. Uh, So obviously a very different situation, but still, you know, a really dangerous situation, one that um, I was kind of tweeting about and I got a lot of pushback on on Twitter. But I I do think that any time you have a situation where individuals, pedestrians are blocking an interstate and you've got officers on the interstate and you've got cars behind them uh, on either side of the interstate, I think you've got a really – really volatile situation. And I think it is uh, a blessing that last night uh, the situation did not get more serious uh, or as serious as it did last year when there were so many injuries. I do think that the St. Paul police, I thought it was very interesting because apparently they were engaging the protesters and encouraging them to walk off the interstate. And I think that that's something that really helped diffuse the tensions because I think they wanted to make their point. I do think, though, it is a very troubling situation when when individuals, in, in terms of trying to protest, attempt to block traffic. And I have seen in covering some of these protests, going back to the Jamar Clark case, I've seen people lying down <laughs> in front of traffic. In, in front of traffic on um, – it was one of sort of the on-ramps uh, right at Highway 55, just sort of off-Broadway in – it's difficult to describe, sort of, you know, just outside on the uh, west side of downtown Minneapolis. It's a very busy area. And I saw this young man lie down and I thought, if somebody runs him over because they didn't see him, I, you know, I don't see how that person's going to be charged with any kind of crime. And I think the situation has gotten to the point where I, I think that the tensions are so high that, that protesters, in an effort to make their voices heard, are taking these extreme steps. And I just think it is really a remarkable situation that last night, and I think that the St. Paul Police deserves a huge shout-out, the State Patrol deserves a state, huge shout-out, and perhaps even, some people might disagree with this, the protesters themselves deserve uh, some credit for getting off of the interstate. But I do think that this trend towards blocking traffic on a major interstate 
is something that, that is going to eventually create some enormous problems and, and I, I think that enormous injuries and potentially loss of life. So just my thoughts. Obviously, emotions running very, very high here. Uh, we will visit uh, during this show with Joe Tamburino, uh, a criminal defense attorney who was not involved in the Yanis case. But I'm going to ask him just you know his thoughts. A lot, a lot went on here in this case. Interesting to see that two jurors who were holdouts until Friday switched. What is that like? What is that like to have that kind of pressure? Had they not switched, obviously. Potentially, you could have had like a Bill Cosby situation with a potential mistrial or a mistrial. But it's obviously something that, that was very, very difficult for them. Um, another thing I want to talk to Joe Tamborino about is that coming up in a few days, folks, uh, they are going to release a video in this case. And this is the video, not the Facebook video. We've all seen that one, the live stream. This is the dash cam video. And this is the dash cam video from the St. Louis or St. Anthony Park Police Department. And everybody that I have heard, including my colleague Bill Hudson, who is a wonderful reporter who did just such a fabulous job covering this entire trial, said was very troubling and very devastating for Officer Yanez. Uh, however, the rest of the testimony, including Officer Yanez's testimony in his own defense, apparently help bolster his case. But this video, I'm concerned from from the description I've had, I have not seen it, I think is going to um, be very difficult for a lot of people to see. And I am worried that it could, in fact, further inflame tension. So I hope that they do it in a reasonable way. I hope that they do it in a way that um, perhaps, you know, people can discuss it and consider it and evaluate, evaluate it and, and talk about it perhaps within the context of the trial. That's obviously very difficult because only you know a handful of people were in that trial. But a lot to talk about there. Also going to ask Joe Tamburino about the situation with the Cosby trial. And, and I, I also wonder, is it more difficult to be a juror in a high-profile case? I actually was a juror. Somehow I got picked <laughs> for a federal jury. It was a fascinating process. Uh, it was not a super high-profile case. It was, believe it or not, an odometer tampering case. Uh, that <laughs> It's a federal crime, uh, Jonathan, to uh, tamper with uh, an odometer. But, uh, you know, it is interesting that, that these high-profile cases with juries often take, you know, quite a bit of time. And the jurors have to know. They have to know. That, that people are watching them. They, they see the reporters. They know that there are press there. They see the cameras there. And I wonder if, if that's that makes it tougher for them uh, or if they're more cautious. Anyway, uh, we're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, uh, we are going to talk with Curtis Massey. He is the president and CEO of Massey Disaster Planning. And we're going to talk to him about the devastating fire that happened at that high rise in London and just what should we know about high rises? What should we know about fire safety, about construction, about buildings around the world? We've talked about this a lot, about traveling around the world or traveling traveling to other countries. What should we know about their standards? What should we know about the precautions that are taken in different countries to prevent a tragedy that occurred in this devastating fire in London? So keep it right here. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. Yeah. Welcome back, folks. 617, 80 degrees in the Twin Cities. Although I have to say it does feel kind of pleasant out there. 
I uh, want to talk about that horrific fire in London this week. Obviously, a lot going on. Such a busy news week. But horrific images of this high-rise tower. You couldn't help, I think, think of, of 9-11 with the flames and people trapped in this high-rise. Uh, there are many, many people who have died. Uh, they, they feel the death toll could rise as high as 70. There are many, many people missing. Curtis Massey is the president and CEO of Massey Disaster Planning. And he is an expert in this field. And he is joining us right now uh, to talk about this and, and what, what we should know about the kinds of efforts that are being made to make sure that our buildings here in the United States are safe, but also around the world. So, Mr. Massey, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. All right, sir. You, you obviously are an expert in this field in terms of, of safety and technology and construction. What, what, are, what is your assessment of this tragedy in Great Britain? Well, I'm not sure the age of the building. I believe it was built in the 70s. So with that in mind, it was likely not sprinklered. And I understand only had one stairwell. Typically, those are barely shoulder width. Wow. And and the issues with high-rises is that in any high-rise fire, you need two stairwells, one to attack the fire, the other one for search and rescue and evacuation. You can't do both from one stairwell. That's impossible. You know, I think think what was... Shocking here is that, you know, you think of Great Britain and the UK as being somewhat on the same page as the United States. Um, uh, First of all, let me just ask you, you just you just mentioned some of the the problems with this particular building. Do those kinds of buildings with that same situation exist here in the United States today? In the U.S., we typically have two stairwells within a core of the building and you have two ways out in a high-rise fire. What you see overseas is you can have one stairwell, and that can run the length of a 50-, 60-, 80-story building. And you also have to have sprinklers to contain the fire to the area of origin and smoke removal systems to evacuate the smoke early into the fire so firefighters can get to the seat of the fire quicker and also allow people to egress from the area where the fire is originating. Most of the time here in the States, we don't want people to evacuate a high-rise building. In the event of a fire, we want them to defend it in place and allow the fire department to get control of the fire because buildings simply are not designed for full building evacuation, even here in the States. So you, you want to contain the area to, that's burning to a small confined space and then allow the fire department to keep that in that area and allow people to stay in place till the fire is contained. And if they have to evacuate further, then they do so. Usually in 90 percent of the fires, it's two floors above, two floors below in the fire floor in an office building and one above, one below in the fire floor and in the residential. All right. Uh, let me ask you, do you know here in the U.S., if you have a building that was built before some of these uh, advances in terms of design were, were made, like the two stairwells, that kind of thing, so are they grandfathered in? In other words, let's say it was built in the 50s and, and it's you know a high-rise building which just has that one stairwell. Is that required to be retrofitted or is it by locality or municipality? Is it the state or is there, are there federal regulations here? Typically, it's based on the municipalities' codes, and most of them are grandfathered. We have really very we have very tall buildings in the U.S. that have no sprinklers in them, in and certain floors. Wow, some are, some are mixed use. Uh, there there are uh, occupancies that have 
uh, 50 or more stories on top of an office component within a tall building that have no sprinklers. So it's key that the occupants know what to do early into the fire and the fire department can get there quickly, get up to the area and attack the fire and not evacuate any more people than you have to. Because once you begin assaulting the fire, you most of the time will contaminate that stairwell. You're bringing your hose line out and that's sure. That's the stair you don't want people coming down. So, so, so these kinds of buildings without one stairwell do exist here, and it, depending on the municipality, they've been grandfathered in. There, there hasn't been some kind of you know requirement to update it or to to re- renovate it. Well, even brand new building. I mean, I'm not saying brand new buildings, but uh, the the Shard in London. It's the tallest building in London. It's uh, to leave 84 stories, and there's only one stairwell at the top of that building, and then has residential. Uh, hotel and office components to it. So when you have one stairwell, that makes it very difficult for the fire department to make the assault on the fire while you're moving people down away from harm's way in the same stair shaft because you're going to have some smoke migration in the stair shaft. And what typically kills most people is carbon monoxide and hydrogen cyanide gases. Well, um, my guest is Curtis Massey. He's the present CEO of Massey Disaster Planning. Um, He conducts seminars uh, for fire departments across the world. He's an expert in this area. Uh, You know, I got to tell you, what you're telling me is is a little, is frankly frightening and uh, is very troubling because you're saying really this kind of setup could occur, you know, just in terms of the structure itself in terms of, of the ideal for, you know, firefighting, you know, safety and evacuation, this is this is not just, you know, in, in London, but this, this these are buildings that are all over the world, including right here in the U.S. I mean, what do you say to people who are hearing you or thinking what I'm thinking that, you know, this is kind of scary. I feel like I'm going to – next time I go into a high-rise or before I have, you know, any friends, you know, check into a high-rise or, or live there, I'm just going to check and see what kind of evacuation systems there are. Yes, you want an operable alarm system, and you want the ability to communicate to the occupants of the building using a PA system or a mass notification system. You want sprinklers. You want an operable standpipe so you can get water on the fire. But what you don't see here in the U.S. that you do see abroad, and I believe you did see it in this fire, was combustible curtain wall insulation. And it's a good resistor against uh, the heat from the outside and also the cold, but it, it burns like gasoline. It's essentially a solidified form of gasoline. And that's why you see the buildings in the Middle East and in Dubai and Qatar, when they light off, they'll light off 50, 60, 80 stories in 15 minutes. And it's because they're using that essentially styrofoam curtain wall cladding. And when you light that, that stuff off in a vertical application, it goes up very fast. And I'm not sure where the fire originated. I believe it was around the fourth floor of this building. But what was on the balconies? Did, did people have plastic furniture on the balconies? And what was the fire load in the balconies? And did the uh, fire extend quickly inside the building from the combustible curtain wall insulation on the exterior, and then it took hold of the apartments. And then you have a a great fire load to to deal with there. And when you have one stairwell and and everybody's streaming down that one stair shaft, then it it makes it even more difficult to operate, and and the firefighters have to get up. And so if they're going up a stairwell trying to use an elevator, does the elevator have firemen's override here in the States? 
you're required to have phase one recall, phase two fire department override in your elevator. So and, and are those federal elevator. regulations, sir? Yes, that, that would be NFPA regulations. So the firemen can seize control of the elevators and use them to go up vertically to within two floors of the fire. Okay. And then you take the stairs, the last two flights, to begin doing your search and rescue and fire attack. Over there, they probably did not have firemen's control in the elevators. Okay. Um, l- let me go back here because um, some of this – I. You know, I- I kind of get what you're saying, but, you know, I, obviously I'm, I'm not, you know, a professional in this field, but you're saying that the kinds of insulation that they use in, in the UK and other countries around the world, not here in the US, is highly combustible. What exactly is that? It's just essentially styrofoam, and it's uh, it's an insulator to the exterior of the building to reduce your energy costs within the building. And as long as you don't light it off, as long as it doesn't burn, it works very well as an insulating component, but the issue is that if it does catch fire, the entire building can go up in a matter of minutes, and that's why it's outlawed here wow. in the U.S., except on the roof, that what you have seen in recent years, you've seen roof fires with that same type of insulation in Las Vegas. Wow, okay. You've seen, you've seen two major fires in Las Vegas on the roofs, but they're not allowed to use that on the curtain wall that goes up the side of the building in the U.S., um, in terms of, of the override of, of for the fire departments to control the elevators, can you explain that to me again? Well, when the firemen get to the fire, they can recall the elevators if they haven't automatically recalled with a lobby smoke detector. If there's a lobby smoke detector in the 20th floor, the elevator should automatically recall to the lobby for the firemen. And if they don't, you can still recall them manually using a key. And then the firemen will seize control, typically one to two elevators in the initial stages of the fire. And then they'll take the elevators up to within two floors of the fire. And then they have to flake out their hose. you got to keep in mind that the firemen use three lengths of hose to attack a fire. That's 150 feet. So if you ran the hose up the side of a building, that reaches 15 stories. All right, and, let... you have to, and you have to flake that out inside the stairwell. And that's the other issue about the U.K. buildings is most of the time the, the standpipes they use to attach their hoses to are not in the stairwells. They're out on the floor or in a vestibule close by. That's not allowed here in the U.S. Most of the uh, the buildings that are built because we have to come out of the stairwell essentially with a loaded gun in our hand. We have to have a charged hose line when we come out of that stairwell, protects the firefighters and allows them to find a way out should conditions deteriorate. Okay. And you you said, you know, one of the first questions I asked you was like, sort of, are, are the regulations sort of in, here in the U.S. sort of based on the municipality? And you said yes, but it also sounds like there are some things that are federally regulated. Can you kind of break that down a little bit? In terms of the new buildings being sprinklered and having alarm systems and having smoke removal systems, and another key feature is stairwell pressurization. You'll find that in your newer buildings here in the U.S. So if there is a fire, you create a fan comes on and creates a positive pressure within the stair shaft, and that allows the people to evacuate without being subjected to the fire gases that are toxic in nature. Okay. All right. Well, listen, um, Curtis Massey, uh, thank you so much. And, and really, you know, great information here because obviously, you know, people saw that and it just so horrific. And clearly there are things that situations that we have to worry about here in the U.S. as well, uh, because we could have buildings with just the one stairwell that you were describing that, that you know, prevents people from evacuating and the firefighters from coming up uh, separately. So uh, thank you so much for, for coming on. We appreciate your insights tonight.
Oh, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. I hope I answered all your questions. Absolutely. Thank you so much, sir. Great information. Well, thank you. Have a good weekend. All right, folks. Uh, Really, just a horrific fire. And again, they're expecting that death toll to uh, possibly be as high as 70. Frightening images there from London. I want to tell you that there's much more ahead on this edition of Saturday Night with Esme. Uh, Coming up after a break, we've got to give you some weather here. A little gray out there, uh, although very pleasant outside in terms of the temperature. Uh, We're going to visit with Joe Tamburino about really the the stunning verdict in the uh, Philando Castile, Officer Yanez case. We'll talk to him about that. What are some of the legal options for the Castile family? They've already said that they plan to file a federal lawsuit. Possibly could there be federal charges as well? I think that there could be. We'll talk to Joe Tamburino about that. Also ask him about the verdict or the non-verdict, I should say, in the Bill Cosby case that came out today. A hung jury, the prosecutor in that case saying he's going to try the case again. You are listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. We're going to take a quick break and give you some weather. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It's Esme Murphy at 633 here on a Saturday evening, still 80 degrees in the Twin Cities. Well, obviously, yesterday afternoon, the verdict came in after many hours of deliberation. Uh, The jury in the case of Officer Yanez, Aronimo Yanez found him not guilty of all three counts in the shooting death of Philando Castile. Of course, we all know the story. Officer Yanez pulled over Mr. Castile, who was with his girlfriend, Diamond Reynolds, and her four-year-old child. Uh, it was a routine traffic stop. Mr. Y- Officer Yanez thought that uh, Philando Castile might be a robbery suspect. That is what Mr. Cast- Officer Castile said. Uh, and within seconds of this traffic stop, uh, Officer Yanez had pulled out his weapon and shot Mr. Castile uh, five times. Uh, there were actually seven shots fired. Five hit Mr. Castile. Uh, all of this happened after uh, Mr. Castile told Officer Yanez that he did have a weapon. Uh, he did not actually say, I've got a permit to carry, which he did, but he did say he had a weapon. Joining us right now, uh, somebody I turn to a lot when I need help with all of these legal stories, the one and only criminal defense attorney, Joe Tamburino. Joe, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Well, great to have you as always. Let me ask you, what was your reaction to the verdict? Because I know you've been studying this case for a long time. Yes, I wasn't really surprised. And here's why. And I know, and you told me that. You you told me that you expected a not guilty verdict. Yeah. And the reason for that is because whenever a prosecutor brings a case against a police officer who did a fatal shooting in the line of duty, the bar, the standard is very, very high for them to meet in order to get a conviction. They not only have to prove what's called culpable negligence, which means that the officer was grossly negligent or reckless, They also have to prove that no reasonable officer in that officer's position would have done that. And that's just very high, very high bar. And, you know, and there were some sort of mitigating circumstances. I mean, there was an officer apparently just, you know, with Officer Yanez or like just right behind Officer Yanez who never pulled out his gun. Uh, But you're saying that, that because of the respect and the due that we all give our police officers, as well we should as well we right. should, the bar is so high that it's almost impossible to convict a police officer. I mean, I'm trying to think of the last time really an, an officer was convicted. I believe it was the, the case in Chicago, which right. seemed, uh, frankly, 
for the lack of a better term, pretty black and white. I mean, you, the guy, yeah. the kid was running away from him and he was being shot in the back. Uh, right. Right. There, there, there have been some police officer convictions, but those have been where, and you're exactly right, someone is running away, the officer shoots him in the back, or the culprit is, you know, 50 feet away and appears unarmed and the officer shoots him. And those officers have been convicted. But when ever since basically the Supreme Court case of Graham v. Connor back in 1989, the Supreme Court made it very clear when you are trying to prove that a police officer committed a crime, uh, culpable negligence, which is manslaughter, in the line of duty, you have to prove not only beyond a reasonable doubt that he was grossly negligent, but also that no reasonable officer in his particular position would have done so. So even though Officer Yanez's partner didn't draw his gun, Yanez's partner wasn't in the same position as Officer Yanez. True. So it's a tragic case, but under the law, I wasn't surprised. In terms of, um, you know, one of the things that I couldn't help but think is is that we heard that, that the jury was deadlocked in this case, and the judge said, go back and keep working. And I think it was the next day that we had the shooting in Washington in which uh, Congressman Scalise and, and three others were, were seriously wounded. And it was obviously something that was just horrifying and, you know, it's just difficult to turn away from. These jurors were not sequestered. I mean, isn't it possible that some of them could have seen some of this coverage of of the the Washington shooting and and felt more sympathetic for the officers than they had originally felt just in general? Sure, it is possible. Um, I have, I mean, I've been doing this for 27 years. I've had over 90 jury trials. Most of them have been felonies. And I think when it comes down to it, jurors are very sincere. And I believe them when they say they're going to try to stay away from the media, try to stay away from uh, overhearing talk about the case that they're on. And I, I believe them. I think most of them are very sincere that they're going to try not to do that. However, we live in the real world. And so you can't turn a corner without seeing a TV, someone's iPad, someone's iPhone, overhearing people talk about it in the office, in the hallway. So, yes, it's possible. And also in that Washington case, we had two police officers who were shot. I mean, those yes. officers, but for those officers, there would have been more congressmen and women who might have been shot. Right. And it's a, I mean, that's what I was curious about, because I just think even I mean, I assume that they were allowed to have their cell phones or watch TV that was not related to this. But then you still have like the flash notifications. And I, I, I mean, yes. it, it just seems so difficult to completely unplug yourself these days. It is. It's very difficult. But on the other hand, you can't sequester every jury. It's just not possible. Uh, There's no way the system could afford it, number one. And number two is you're never going to get jurors because if you say to someone, look, for three weeks, I'm going to take you out of commission. You can't go home. You got to stay in a hotel. I mean, you just can't do do that. It would be so hard to find jurors. In terms of, um, you know, so you had these two jurors that as of Wednesday were holding out and they flipped on Friday. And while I have not certainly been anywhere near enough trials, as many trials as you have, I, I feel like I have covered a number of trials where there have been long jury deliberations and the jury comes back on Friday afternoon because I'm sure they're sick of it and they want to go back to their, their real lives. Is that sort of fair, you know, to put that, you know, say you got to go back to work and, and you know, you know, put all that pressure on these jurors? Because obviously they felt pretty strongly. They held out for a number of days. 
It is fair because, again, this is a human process. I, I don't know of anything where people in our society have to stay together and work together uh, because it's their, it's their civic duty. It's something that we all have to do if we're called upon to do. But we are also human beings. So, of course, there's fatigue. You get tired, and all of a sudden it's the end of the week. And, yes, based on any human process, you might have one or two people saying, okay, I give up. You guys are right. Or somehow they find that they're agreeing with the rest of the group for some reason. So it might not be the fairest system, but it is fair, and it has worked this way for hundreds of years. In terms of of the actual – verdict and and you know the, the the final decision i mean one of the things that that obviously is going to happen or that appears definitely going to happen next is that the castillo family has said that they will file a federal lawsuit against officer yanez sure how does that work uh two different systems in in criminal court the state has the burden of proving everything every element of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt in civil court that standard goes way down to what's called preponderance of the evidence, which means more likely than not. That means that in a civil case, a jury has to say, gee, could it be that 51% is toward guilty or at fault, Mr. Yanez being at fault? That's quite different than having beyond a reasonable doubt, which is basically 90, whatever number you want to use, but it's a very high number. So the standard of proof is much lower, and that's why in many of these cases you will see that the civil trial, either there is a finding of fault or they negotiate something. Uh, we're chatting with uh, Joe Tamburino, who's a criminal defense attorney. Uh, he was not affiliated with the Yanez case, but he's somebody that we turn to uh, for advice and analysis, or certainly that I turn to for advice and analysis on these uh, criminal cases. Let me ask you, is it possible, because we've seen this before, and I know that there's been an acquittal here in you know, in terms of Ramsey County District Court, State Court, is it possible that there could be criminal charges filed against Officer Yanez in federal court? It's possible, but I would bet it's not going to happen. Because in order to charge Officer Yanez in federal court, you would have to show that he violated the civil rights, meaning that based on racial animus or something along those lines against Mr. Castile. And there's nothing really to show that that was the case. I, I doubt the federal government would bring charges against him for that. The federal government has a limited jurisdiction. It just can't charge someone because... You know, they, they are accused of committing a homicide. It has to be some type of federal law or statute that's violated. And for this, it would be civil rights. And I just don't see them doing that. And is that just in general, even if this were, you know, a, the previous presidential administration, as opposed to you know, President Trump, we still don't have a U.S. attorney here. Um, we do not. You know, and is that unusual to not have a U.S. attorney appointed by a new president? Yes. Five months? I mean, Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're five months into this president's term, and uh, there's so many appointments that need to be filled. It's unbelievable. But 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 is normally at this point, is there a U.S. attorney? Yes, because usually what happens is, you know, quite frankly, when if it's a Democrat or a Republican who's president, they have usually boots on the ground in every state where there's a recommendation from their party leaders or people in their party who are senators or congressmen. Right who will say, here's who we recommend. Usually the work's been done already, and in this case, obviously it hasn't. Right, and that, I mean, that is, uh, 
exactly what I'm hearing from people in the, yeah. in the political sphere right. because President right. Trump or then-candidate Trump did not have any kind of operation here in Minnesota. Yeah. Going back to the Castile case, I, um, I, I want to ask you about this because one of the things that apparently is going to happen next week is that we are going to see the release of the dash cam video. And this is not the Facebook video, which I think we've all seen, which is really horrifying and and clearly shows in the moments, the seconds after this shooting, Officer Yanez in a very agitated, uh, you know, and I'm going to use the word unprofessional state. I mean, he's he's shaking. He's, you know, clearly just, you know, not in control. But the dash cam video... Uh, I have talked to several people who have seen it, including uh, my colleague Bill Hudson, who is a, a fabulous reporter and did a fabulous job, as did you know my colleagues um, Jen Merrily and also Red Chapman covering this tr- case. But Bill saw this dash cam video and said, whoa, this is one of the first pieces of evidence that uh, the prosecutors introduced. And he said it was very damaging to Officer Yanez. Now, other, t- other testimony, other evidence, including Officer Yanez's own testimony – helped his case, obviously, and that's probably why he prevailed. But this video is going to be released. And it shows Officer Yanez. There's audio on it that shows um, you can hear uh, Mr. Castillo being very respectful, saying, uh, you know, Officer, I've got a gun. Anyway, what are your thoughts about this video being released? Because what what happens in in a trial, folks, is that exhibits in a trial are are public so that the public gets to see them. But apparently this is something that – I think is going to upset a a great many people. It is. And in our system, and it's the right way of doing it, whatever happens in a trial is public. And when the case is over, the public has a right to see that. So this is something that happens every day, except in certain situations, very rare situations, we have something that is very emotionally traumatic that gets into the public view. But what people have to keep in mind is it's not just what you as a member of the public might think of this video. It's what the jury thought of the video in light of all of the other evidence. So yes, maybe to you or I, it looks like a damaging video, but the jury could have said, well, yes, it's damaging, but we do note that in that video, Officer Yanez said, don't reach for it three times. Uh, Mr. Castile said, I'm not reaching for it, but we don't know if Officer Yanez heard that. We don't know if there was any kind to react to that. So even though we as individuals might see it one way, right. we have to think about the jury and how they saw it in light of all the other evidence. Hey, yeah, and it's not clear. You know, and certainly, um, you know, we can't see Officer Yanez's test because we don't have cameras in the courtroom in Minnesota. We're right. not going to see – apparently Officer Yanez was very convincing on the stand when he said he felt his life was in danger and that he was going to die. Apparently he was pretty darn convincing. Uh, but right. we won't see that. But but we are going to get some of these other things released. So. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens then. Um, listen, um, I guess Joe Tamburino, criminal defense attorney. Joe, we're going to take a quick break, very quick break. When we come back, I want to ask you about the Cosby case, another high-profile case where the jury said it was deadlocked. The judge said, you got to go back to work. In this case, they couldn't agree. So I want to ask you about that when we come back. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. It's Esme Murphy back with you uh, 6.50 in the evening, 80 degrees in the Twin Cities, chatting with Joe Tamburino, criminal defense attorney. Uh, switching gears here from the Officer Yanez case to the Bill Cosby case, another high-profile case where the jury was deadlocked. In both these cases, the judge said, no, you got to go back to work. 
In the Yanez case, the jury did reach a verdict. The two holdouts flipped. In the Cosby case, they did not reach a verdict, and a deadlock was announced today. Uh, the prosecution saying they will retry Bill Cosby. Let me ask you, Joe Tamburino, first of all, do you think that it's harder for juries in these high-profile cases? I mean, they have to know that there are reporters there, that people are watching them. Yes, and especially in the Cosby case, it brings up the other thing, which is it's especially hard when the person is a celebrity because whenever you're, I think, a juror on a celebrity case, one of the things you have to be thinking about is, well, wait a minute, is this person making the allegation against a celebrity because they might sue them and get money? Is this person doing this because they, too, want to get in the limelight? So there's this whole other layer whenever you prosecute a celebrity, which I'm sure came into play in this case. All right. Uh, you know, I think that, I feel like there, there's been sort of so much out there and perhaps, you know, the difference is that not all of it got to the jury about this pattern of, of predatory behavior by Bill Cosby especially during the years when he was, and for those who are younger here, it may may be hard to remember how big a star he was. I mean, he was as big as any star, uh, you know, at at the time. Oh, he was. Back in the 70s when I was a kid, I watched Fat Albert all the time, and he was the voice for all of that. And then it goes into the Cosby show and all of his stand-up acts. I mean, yeah, he was a superstar. There was no doubt about it. But you bring up a very good point about these other allegations. It was interesting that the judge in this case said to the prosecutor, look, prosecutor wants 13 of these other women to come in in order to show a pattern of behavior, that this is what this guy does. He drugs drugs women and then he molests them. And the judge says, you're only going to get in one. And I think the one she was called by the name of Casey, I think that was it. So the judge just let in one. And I'm sure that's what kept the jury out so long. Now, we're going to see what happens in trial number two. Is that new judge, or who knows, the same judge going to just let in one, or is he or she going to let in more? Because I can tell you, if you have two or three prior allegations that come into a trial, it's almost certainly going to be a conviction. I mean, you you just got too much coming at you. One, you could probably deal with year four, much more difficult for the defense. All right. And they say that they are going to retry it. And that announcement came almost instantaneously. Uh, Is that the way it always works? And how how is that decision arrived at? It's arrived at basically by the prosecutor saying, uh, number one, do they think this is an important enough case to do a retrial? Obviously, in the situation it is. Number two, do they think their evidence will remain the same or stronger in trial number two? If they think it's going to be weaker, obviously, that's something else. And number three, do they think they have even better arguments so that they could get more evidence in in the next trial? And if the answer to all of those are yes, then it's a green light. Then they're going to go for it. And in uh, the state of Pennsylvania, it seems the rule is the retrial happens in 120 days. So that's a pretty quick turnaround. You know, for all the difficulties in this case, I mean, are sexual assault cases, especially so many years later, I mean, this was a long time ago, um, more more than 10 years ago, is that that a problem too? Oh, sure. Absolutely, it's a problem. Because let's face it, the more that time goes by, um, the more that people question the quality of the evidence. You know, if you or I saw a crime happening yesterday, 
uh, we, you and I would be able to talk about it today, and we would say, look, it's fresh in our memory. Here's what's happening. But say there's a witness who saw something 10 years ago, um, just a witness who says, well, I was there, or I saw different things. Uh, that witness's testimony will be attacked up and down and sideways because it's 10 years ago, and maybe their story has changed, and maybe things have happened to them in 10 years that would affect their recollection. So the longer time goes by, the harder it is to prosecute a case. And is it who has the advantage in a retrial? I mean, I mean, I would think that that both sides can sort of you know take away. Oh, I wish I could ask that question or redone this this right. way or whatever. Um, but is there is there one side that has more of an advantage? My experience has always been that the defense has more advantage. Really? Because, yes, because with the defense, you always are trying to do nuances. You're trying to say, well. This piece of evidence could look like this, but it really is this way. And if you see, if you get a rehearsal of the prosecutor's case in trial number one, you are much better prepared for trial number two. Now, I think there's going to be a difference in Mr. Cosby's case if the other allegations come in, because if the judge allows two, three, four of these other victims to come in and testify against Mr. Cosby, I think that changes the whole game. Because these other victims who, who their evidence did not come in, it's this, they're all sort of saying the same story. I was the sort of story. You know, in, in awe of this you know, famous person, and you know, I, I thought he would help me with my career, and then I'm, suddenly I'm there with him, and I'm intimidated by what a star he is, and then you know, he gives me these pills. and I mean, they're all sort of has the same kind of you know, facts laid out. It does. And and not only that, what makes the Cosby case so different from a lot of other celebrity high-profile cases is that he decided to contest the lawsuit against him by Ms. Constant, what was it, eight years ago, in 2000, I don't know, six or seven, ten years ago. And um, he testified in depositions. Uh, I don't know, uh, I don't know what kind of counsel he had back then, but it is very, very rare for a defense attorney to say to their client, gee, go ahead, do the deposition, have somebody question you. We try to protect our clients. I would never have let him submit to that deposition. I would have tried to resolve the case. Well, all right. Well, Joe Tamburino, thank you so much. We'll see you tomorrow at uh, 1030 a.m. on the TV side. Thank you so much, sir, for coming in. Thank you. See you tomorrow. Okay. Thanks, Joe. Uh, All right. Fascinating stuff. And obviously, uh, two different cases, two high-profile cases, Uh, with very different outcomes. All right, you're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. Keep it right here, folks. Much more ahead. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.